0: I'm Eugene Kim, and I welcome you to the Four Prompts on Death podcast. The podcast where we talk about death through the four prompts of I am, before I die, I want, when I die, I want, and after I die, I want. This week, we sit down with Stephen Jenkinson. Stephen is a 66-year-old teacher, author, storyteller, and musician. I met Stephen first through his incredible book, Die Wise, And truly enjoyed this conversation with a man who has spent time in the trenches and has already forgotten more about death than I will likely learn in my remaining life. During this conversation, he appropriately eviscerates the premise of The Four Prompts. We discuss how right and wrong is meaningless in the context of fulfilling the wolf's role and how advanced directives are a final grasp at control and autonomy. So there's a lot I can say about this interview. Um, I'm not going to give the usual like kind of like his responses in brief because he doesn't really address them, and it's a it's a really one in a really wonderful way. I think I could spend about as much time waxing philosophic about this conversation as the actual length of the conversation. Um, so I guess I'll start here. So with Stephen, or with with like with these these four prompts in general it's sort of like handing a person um, a ruled piece of paper and you sort of let them do whatever what they will with it sometimes people will write you know in the lines with very clear concise handwriting and like you know answering any questions you might have sometimes people will draw a picture you know a little bit out of the box um, or maybe they'll they won't respect the rules of the you know paper and then they'll write you know diagonally or whatever And what I appreciate about Stephen is he engages with the paper, but he but in on, only so far as he is pointing out the, the ridiculousness of trying to put your thoughts down on paper in the first place. Um, it's sort of like he goes, it's like, you know, if you put somebody in, a, in an escape room, they'll, they, you know, some people will kind of really engage with it. They'll try to play, they'll get really involved in the, the role play of an escape room, where Steven is just like, what is this nonsense? Like, why, why is this here? Why is that there? What's going on here? Who thought of that? Um... And it's the it is exactly the kind of conversation I wanted and I think I needed at the time that the conversation occurred, um, which was a couple weeks back um, and actually on election day. Um, so it was a weird time. and also right around the time I was actually thinking about stop, stopping this podcast. and, and part of uh, this conversation with Mr. Jenkinson really reinvigorated my love of the interview, and um, he touches on that in his own way. Um, and so he, approaches the conversation in a way that I hope that I would when I have accumulated as much life experience as he has. Um, you know, there's, there's like the, I think that the, the four prompts in Ellie's concept are very useful for most people. For like let's say 99% of you know, Western uh, folks like Western dominant culture, in North America folks. Where it 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 really helps lubricate the conversation and and put all these disparate thoughts that are rarely considered into a a coherent or semi-coherent narrative. However, the four prompts are I think inappropriate for the uh, that that other one percent, and I do believe that Mr. Jenkinson does fall into that one percent of people who just it it's um that. It's not that <sighs> he is somebody who thinks so deeply about death and has thought so deeply on death and has already uh, deeply informed my concept of what dying means uh, through his book, Die Wise, that um, he, it's... the, the <laughs> I mean, you'll hear it. You'll hear it in the next hour or two. Don't worry. Um, it's really great. He... It's he's just like ribbing me for a lot of the conversation, and I think he really appreciated how well it, I think I you know this is me being you know a little pat on myself in the back, but I think I handled his ribbing quite well, and I think he uh, and through that ribbing we were able to find a lovely uh, place of play in the conversation. I wanted the conversation to go on for another hour and a half easily um, due to time, um, and I think I conducted myself well uh, for. The role of the interviewer. Um, and I think you'll hear the, 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 the little battle in my own head between the interviewer and the listener. And uh, those are not overlapping roles. Uh, at, 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 when I transition from I am to Before I Die I Want, I think you hear how awkward it is because the, the point that Stephen makes right at the end of that Um, Before I transition us to the next prompt is a place that I, as a listener, really wanted to sit in. And I really appreciated how he was speaking to me and helping change my ideas um, about the wolf's role and and the relationship I have with my gross old dog. but also, you know, if in the context of the interviewer, I got to move things along. I got to make sure we end, uh, you know, at the appropriate time after addressing at least the appropriate prompts. Um, and so it was tough. And that's something that I'm also coming to grips with is the interviewer versus the listener, uh, during the live conversation of like, how much do I really sit in and be affected by what I'm hearing versus how much do I play the 100-foot role understanding the, the, the terrain that we need to cover before the end of the conversation, or at least, you know, that I think we need to cover by the end of the conversation. So it's a re- I really had so much fun with this. I'm going to continue to listen to this every once in a while because I found great value in it, and I hope that you do too. Um, his his the, the way that he so casually and thoroughly tossed aside my notion of right and wrong in the context of dealing with uh, my gross dog's death and upcoming death, uh, really did a number on me. And I think the way he approached it was so kind and uh, brutal at the same time. And I think... One, another thing I love about Stephen is his storytelling. He's an amazing storyteller. Um, and in his book, Die Wise, he talks about how he is a pale shadow of the the person that he kind of apprenticed under. Um, and even that is so, his storytelling is so far beyond, uh, Stephen's storytelling is so far beyond what I know in my day to day life. And um, I really appreciate the way that he tells his stories. And I also really appreciate the ways that he knows or can so casually sidestep the telling of stories that are not his to tell um and i wonder if you the listener can kind of hear when he does that um i I definitely can hear it it's very very beautiful and very loving in the way that he just is like "Mm, not my story we're gonna move right on by this and it's like "Oh, i I get it and um, i think he saw that too or maybe i'm just projecting who knows as you can tell i have a large crush on this man (laughs) so um oh and then one other thing i wanted to tell you is that the end of this conversation uh we will have uh you know, he discusses um, a song that he would like to be played at, kind of as an outro. Um, and this comes from his album, uh, Dark Roads, Rough Gods. This is a uh, collaboration with a band as well as Gregory Hoskins, I believe. Oh, sorry. Um, I believe it is Gregory Hoskins. Um, who, does, yes. Uh, in in the Rough Gods is the studio recordings and Dark Roads is the live concert. And I've, um, I've actually sent out some of the songs from rough gods to a very close friend of mine that I consider a spiritual brother. And he was telling me that when he listened to it, he was like, it's really cool. I also have no idea when I would listen to it, like what kind of mood I would want to be in when I listen to this music. And I think that's the beauty of this, of this album. It is unlike any other, um, recording or music or, uh, music that I've ever really heard before. Um, in a way that I deeply appreciate it, there's no, I think that if you are there, there's, I think rarely, um, except in, you know, in times of grief or what have you, or great, you know, life changes, will you be in a mood that is like, let's put this album on. And I also think that when you put this album on, you'll be put into a mood. It will create a sense for you that is so different from any other music or like podcast or, uh, uh, audio book that you will really listen to. And that's why this is something that, you know, when I'm alone, when it's quiet, uh, when I when I want to sort of meditate, sort of not, uh, I will put this on um, over the past two weeks and really just get transmuted. Uh, it's, it's a true alchemy that he uh, and Gregory have created. Um, and so we're going to play at the very end of this recording, um, Harvard Square, which is the last track on the rough gods, uh, the, the studio recordings. And, um, part of, part of why I love that recommendation is a, it's an amazing track, uh, that speaks to me very deeply. Uh, but also I have such fond memories of Harvard square from my time in, uh, at Tufts university in Boston. Um, and I can really, the way he describes it and the way, you know, the, the, the soundscape of it all really does take me to Harvard square, um, And it's such a beautiful thing. I think you'll really appreciate this conversation. I hope you do, at least. Um, And I hope you don't mind me waxing too philosophic about it. So uh, please get ready for this wonderful conversation with Stephen Jenkinson on death. So it is November 3rd, 2020. I'm sitting here in my Orfield, Pennsylvania home. And Stephen Jenkinson is sitting in his Ontario, Canada farm. And we're going to be talking about death through the four prompts. Stephen, what is your recollection of the four prompts? (laughs)
1: <laughs> You're testing my memory so early in the proceedings, just to uh, balance the books, I guess. Yes. Taking advantage of my 66-year-old uh, memory gland. <laughs> um. You know, I, I think the first one was something like, I am, was it not?
0: That is correct.
1: Okay, so we'll just leave it at that. Um, we we'll leave it at that. So how do
0: you finish that first prompt of, I am?
1: Well, yeah, that's what I said. I'll just leave it at that. Um, I, I, you know, I think... It's overkill that phrase. I am. It's just overkill. Um, God knows we need leave enough of a bruise on this operation. Uh, I'm talking about dominant culture North Americans here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We leave enough of a bruise on the operation by dragging ourselves around the countryside and imposing, uh, you know, our plans and our schemes without, you know, megalomaniacal declarations about our presence. We got plenty <laughs> of evidence that we have presence and consequence without making declarations so i'm not a fan frankly of anything that begins with i am it's it's um it's too definitive it banishes mystery and wonder and indecision and uh uh even to declare with great pomp that you're indecisive and and uh confused it still has the air of caesar about it just so I tend to stay away from it, and I guess I'll continue to do so this morning.
0: That's fair. And I uh, expected nothing less from you, uh, Stephen, (laughs) in terms of an approach to these problems. Uh Um, So I'd like to take a step back. And um, what did you have a religious or spiritual upbringing to your childhood? Uh, These are the word religious
1: is not such a portentous uh, phrase, really because we can have some agreement about what constitutes things religious, I suppose Mm -hmm. it has a lot to do with institutions and um, tax benefits and, (laughs) you know, things of this kind, but the spiritual thing, uh, you know, we're in North America, at least we're off the rails very quickly. Whenever we begin to talk about the quote unquote inner life, there's just so little shared understanding of the terrain Mm -hmm. and the weather of such a place and such a time. That, uh, you know, you, you properly should go about your business of, of um, to the best of your ability, being clear instead of using uh, catchphrases or space-maintaining words like uh, spiritual. But, so let me see if I can pursue that. No, when I was, um, to the best of my recollection growing up, the, uh, my mother in particular was, had an aversion to... Uh, things religious. Mm-hmm. And um, she was ha- only too happy to pass that along. And I'm, I don't have it in a, in a f- sort of darkened and vehement and aggressive way, but neither have I ever really found myself um, compelled by uh, an institutional enterprise. Mm-hmm. I tried actually several times along the way mm-hmm. To join, uh, I I know that doesn't sound consistent, but consistency is is, is nothing to brag about. So uh, and the, and in each case, uh, there was something uh, violating about my attempt to do so. That's that's the best way I can put it. That is that the places seemed or the people in question seemed content enough to have me in their ranks, but there was something about my um, understanding of what the cost was and the implications that I, well, I didn't follow through and never did follow through. I've never joined anything at all. And I don't say that out of any pride. I just never did. And I can tell you from a spiritual point of view, that can be a lonely making thing Mm -hmm. to, uh, Mm -hmm. to proceed, you know, minus an affiliation that, that translates quickly and glibly. (laughs) There's a, it's a lot more work if you don't belong. Let's just put it that way. As far as the spiritual thing goes, well, you know, an ordinary life is um, intensely informed by spiritual things, regardless of whether we admit it or allow it or, you know, cop to it or anything of the kind. It's there, it's there. It's something like not believing in the ground. I mean, mm-hmm. you could not believe in it if you want, but you're just a <laughs> lunkhead to do so. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the ground is continuing to push up life and do what it does. And that's my best take on things spiritual is that they, they manifest and they persist. They have real consequence and draw down and all of these things. Uh, they don't mean us any particular harm, nor do they mean us any particular good, I would say. But uh, they mean us, though. It's clear that we don't get out of here unspirited during the course of our brief but intense allotment, you know, in the world. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the way I've come to uh, understand it, and it wasn't there in a deliberate and explicit way when I was growing up that I recall. But somehow you can come by things that your childhood does not promise.. Mm.
0: And so I'm, so I'm thinking of a couple threads to pick up and I wonder, um, you know, from your mother's perspective with her kind of, you know, as you were describing like a very, you know, indifference or like a anti-aversion towards Mm -hmm. religion. uh, Mm -hmm. But I also understand that you had a serious brush with, uh, uh, you know, meningitis as a child. And I wonder if that challenged her, did she, did she... Come towards, or did she go further away from a faith, or you know, an attempt to prayer? Uh, in those, in those, you know, you know, I, I understand that you weren't quite uh, aware, but maybe in retrospect. And then I also know that you attended uh, Dymity School, and yeah. I wonder is that was that one of those attempts to kind of come towards something, and then you found mm-hmm. it's not the cost is too much.
1: Okay, uh, we'll start with the meningitis thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: you no, know, my mother's uh, uh, aversion really rooted from a handful of experiences she had as a slightly younger woman
2: mm.
1: younger than when I came on the scene and uh it it and it caused her to to actively disbelieve in any sanctity that could accrue to the system let's mm-hmm. just let's just say mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. So uh, so when the meningitis came along and and she discovered much to her, no doubt it must have been undoing as a parent to discover that she was the, the carrier of the virus. Not unlike, mm-hmm. you know, today sometimes that people can be a carrier of, you know, which virus I'm referring to now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and not know it, be asymptomatic, and people around them, more susceptible, draw down that virus and, uh, you know, there it is. And that's what happened to myself and my younger sister. So uh, and uh yeah, I I nearly died certainly. Uh and I can I can quite remember that. Um, I can even remember this, but I should say the sense that you're dying, or the information and the kind of emotional load that comes with that is really a consequence of how the people around you are organizing themselves. I was probably three and a half or something like this. And what I remember is um that I, it's kind of the echo of what was going on as it came to me from the behavior of the nurses and the doctors and you know, the visiting times and things of that kind, because I was in the hospital at the time. And so if we fast forward then to the second half of your question about um, whether or not there's an enduring kind of legacy that makes me say say spiritually either inclined or vulnerable or prone, Mm -hmm. Um, I should friggin' hope so (laughs) I mean I don't know I can't speak with great authority about it but you would hope that nearly dying as a three-year-old would stick to you over time Mm -hmm. you would friggin' hope so (laughs) because after because what does it take for god's sake if that's (laughs) if that is just dispelled in the ordinary mists of uh, an idiotic adolescence or what have you Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certainly, there's been bulks of times where I've forgotten all of the stuff we're talking about now completely, and, and turned into a, an, a normal amnesiac, you know, lunatic. And somehow I come either to my senses or to someone else's from time to time, and am brought back to an understanding of how absolutely, um, for now, the whole thing is, and that. That it's, it's, it's grievous to realize that because the first consequence of the realization is that you have forgotten for chunks of time in your life, you've forgotten how temporary the whole thing is. And,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you may have you know, taken it for granted, you may have become uh, the, the um, less distinct form of arrogant, the kind that presumes that you've got a tomorrow to do things in. Mm-hmm. Right, And it doesn't necessarily mean you wait, but it could mean that the weight that you, that you lend to certain undertakings is um, skewed by the presumption that there's such a thing as a future.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, on my better days, I know full well there isn't.
2: Mm. You know,
1: future is an allegation. <laughs> now is a handful. And in between those two things, we live our days.
0: Mm. And what does what does it like? Do you have a set of spiritual practices that you um, that you you know practice on a regular basis these days, or mm-hmm. is it more of that understanding that on you know when you remember and don't forget that mm-hmm. all you are given is that handful?
1: Yeah. Well, I think um, one of my spiritual practices is succumbing to these interviews. To be honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not a lot of people would acknowledge the spiritual quality of doing so i'm quite sure but one of the reasons i do it is to see if i'm still in tune as a kind of musical instrument you know Mm -hmm. can i carry the phrase am i chromatically you know organized these kinds of things Mm -hmm. um uh, of the kind that you probably meant not really uh i there's almost nothing i do every day except to. Forget to do the things I meant to do every day. I do that every day. But it's a really inadvertent spiritual practice to be a forgetting, forgetful person and and then practice your forgetfulness. Mm -hmm. I don't seem to forget to do that, alas. But um, you know, I I probably make it sound more onerous and, and troubling than it is. I mean, I, you know, I try to, upon awakening. Uh, exclaim <laughs> excuse me, something, or at least experience a kind of exclamation point, like, so many things could have happened uh, during the course of the night. Many of them did. None of them happened, though, in this house. Mm-hmm. I was permitted slumber, you know, more or less undisturbed, and then I'm permitted to stir from it, and um, and see if I can proceed. Like that was a gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that qualifies, I think, as a spiritual practice. The more overt kinds though, well, we're we're farmers here and farming gives you lots of chances to to still your entangled self. And Mm -hmm. particularly in this season, which is the slaughtering butchering season here at the farm. Just right now, I mean, in the last probably six or seven days and for the next six or seven or two weeks or so. Mm -hmm. And, um, it involves, you know, mornings full of killing. And I know that could disturb a lot of people to hear that. But I'm not sure that engaging in uh, vegetarian practices any less involves any less killing, to be frank. You might not hear them, quote, scream or twist when you pull them out of the ground, but, but there it is. And I, I'm not playing gotcha by saying that. I'm just saying, you know, anticipating the understandable recoil that people would have to elevate um, the killing of animals in your care to a spiritual practice. I didn't say the killing was a spiritual practice. But I will say that the. That the proceeding as if these days are coming. And the way you organize yourselves. There's probably eight or ten of us here that live here on the farm. Mm-hmm. And the kind of grievousness with which we walk through the days. Coming up to that. All of these things Are the kind of thing that other people in other circumstances have to engineer, if you will, a kind of sense of the moment might have to engineer it because it may not present itself in an ordinary day. But when you are on the killing end of life from time to time in a farm circumstance, although it's not automatic that any farmer becomes a kind of monastic, monastically alert, let's say, (laughs) Mm -hmm. as it happens around here, uh, we do. Uh, I'm not bragging, I'm saying I'm lucky, you know, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: Mm, Yeah, and I, I, I want to tell you this story about this old gross dog that we have in our lives right now. Her name's Honey, she's 13 years old, and uh, we inherited her from a, a, a young man who raised her from a young pup and fed her a bottle, and he had to move out to the city, and he couldn't take her with her. And she is in her last days, and we're thinking that this is going to be her last winter. And it really, to to just kind of like reflect what you were talking about with that, that grievousness is that um, just, you know, every visit, I'm like, look, this is this is the single digits. You have single digits visits with her. And he comes, and he sees her, and she sees her hips getting older, and he you know, there's a weight to it. And, and, you know, we're definitely driving the process because we're both, uh, resident physicians. We see a lot of death and dying and we're like, we don't want to see her. We don't, we want, we want her to go out a little early. We don't want her to go out a little late. And so we're, you know, we're kind of pushing the process of like, look, we're going to talk to a veterinarian. We want, uh, we want you to know that this is happening and, you know, directing this mostly towards the, uh, the previous owner because he has so much love for her and it's, you know, it's, we're we're in a a way kind of guiding him towards that grievousness. And it's, if you don't, if you've never really, I've never lived on a farm, I've never uh, cared for livestock, but I have have killed animals under my care because I think that was either the best thing for them or it was the only thing that I could do for them. Um, And it is a very different kind of approach that you take towards that interaction and that understanding um, of life. And I think, I, I, like that monastic approach that you're talking about, i really I really understand that on a, mm. a level.
1: do you know when you when you t- talk in terms of it's the best thing, it's the only thing, and stuff like that mm-hmm. when it comes to taking life, which is exactly what we're talking about, there's no sense pretending that's not what it is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You'll never win an argument with somebody who refuses to imagine that that's what that could be or waits for you to, you know, unerringly persuade them of the the kind of moral rectitude of this mm-hmm. action, you you, it's not the point. Mm-hmm. The point is not to um, have third person approval of this undertaking. The deeper point is, can you conduct yourself as if you let yourself in for this very moment, months or years before when you said yes? Because if you don't let the, quote, wild take its course, which is at the first sign of decrepitude or, or age or, or or injury or whatever it is, mm-hmm. that animal will be somebody else's food, you know, quicker than you can blink in a real working place. And we've banished all of that in the circumstance of either domesticated
2: mm-hmm.
1: animals like you've described or slightly less domesticated in the form of farming and so on.
2: Mm-hmm. We've
1: banished all that. And. The only way it seems to me to live accordingly, not to, I don't know what the the word right, the phrase right thing doesn't mean anything to me, but the only way we can proceed is if what's happening is happening and to sign up for the active duty is to recognize that in banishing the wolf, let's just use the word wolf as a stand-in for all the adversaries. Mm -hmm. In banishing the wolf, your moral obligation is to take upon yourself the wolf's function. And any failure to do that is a an is indefensible failure of the will and a betrayal of the arrangement that you entered into, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for better and for worse. And uh, it's, it's it must be part of the deal, right? And so, you know, people can use the first phrase play, playing God there at the end of life, but you're not playing God any less there at the beginning. Mm -hmm. If you've had kids you know that's full well that's true, you kind of open the door and there they came, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so on, and you know, and you hope that you die first, but you never know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you fated them to die themselves, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: by virtue of opening the door to them. So that's a dramatic rendering of an equally dramatic understanding of, uh, you know, the animal circumstance. And this leads very quickly into any uh, discussion of euthanasia, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you want to have it, we can certainly do that. But, um, but the spiritual practice is the willingness to be undone in your sense of moral, uh, that, that what you're doing can be morally approved of. You have to be willing to forego that. In the name of trying to do well by what you've put into motion,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and you can't get anybody outside the arrangement to understand that.
2: Mm-hmm. So there's
1: no point in trying, I would mm-hmm. say. And it's one of the reasons why, when we are in this time of year, we see to it that there's no visitors, there's no spectators, there's no nobody comes from the outside mm-hmm. during this time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, we did it once by accident, not by accident, by ill-advisedness, imagining (laughs) that some kind of exposure to these things increases the the sort of intellectual gene pool of understanding what you and I are talking about right now, only to discover that it was a photo op for them. And it was just, it was so disturbing and disgraced Mm -hmm. that it was a very easy decision uh, never to do that again. And Mm -hmm. of course we never will.
0: And I think it also speaks to the like uh, being there for the ending and not being there for the beginning, or you know, there's that that, that kind of reflection of, of both sides. That um, I don't know, and that's hard for me to put it into words right now.
1: No, I'm I'm following you. I'm I'm thinking a little further uh, about your situation with the dog. Now you didn't mm-hmm. you didn't agree to have a puppy. Um, mm-hmm. But you somewhere you said yes. You didn't have to be at that beginning, but there was a beginning
2: mm-hmm.
1: where you took the dog into your care, your life, your concern, your uh, your understanding of life, and so on. And in it, and you know it's not an extension of you, this dog, nor an extension of the previous owner. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm not sure the word owner really ever should <laughs> should be used, right? But but what you've done is you've taken up where the previous um proprietor uh, left off. And in so doing, you signed up for all of this. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now here you are. And you'll never get to do the right thing. What you'll have to do is take instruction from necessity. Obviously, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying anything you don't know here. But um, I think there's some genuine mercy in realizing that language of right and wrong generally doesn't apply when the mandates of life come around. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can pretend about right and wrong. You can experiment with it. You you can lift it up and put it down again. But if you think that doing the right thing has the result of feeling right about it, Mm -hmm. you couldn't be more wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that.
0: And I think, uh, for the sake of unfortunate time, I think I would love, I would want to move to that next prompt of before I die, I want, um, and I just well, I want to keep lingering here, um, and I know that we'll keep covering some good ground where I, I'll want to linger more. Um, and so I, I wanted to ask you, how, how would, do you, do you um, take the same kind of, I would not answer that question uh, for that prompt? Uh,
1: sorry, what's the prompt again?
0: Before I die, I want.
1: Yeah. Oh, I definitely wouldn't.
0: I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't drink that Kool-Aid for a second. No. <laughs> and why I'm, is that? I think I know uh, why, but I'd love to hear it.
1: It's because of the last word in the prompt, really. Mm. Because the architecture uh, would appear to invite the 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 kind of supremacy of intention or 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 desire or mm, mm-hmm. you know or unhappiness or whatever it is that results in the wanting. Mm-hmm one of the one of the hardest things to wrestle to the ground and finally to extinguish is the idea that you get a vote <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and this is i I'm, I'm well aware of what day it is as as you as are you <laughs> yes. in, in your country there. I thank God every day for the border,
0: <laughs> and sure as I do. said,
1: in the early years, we we're thinking about building a wall ourselves, and we're going to get you to pay for it <laughs> but um but in truth, the big things in life, you don't get a vote in whether they're the big things in life. Mm-hmm. You get a vote in whether or not you're willing to proceed as if they're big. That's it. And a consumer mm-hmm. culture is one of the most seductive monstrosities that humans have ever come up with. Because in a consumer culture, there's, there's paltry exercises of dominion. That's all there are. You know, are you going to get Coke or are you going to get Pepsi? I mean, if you call that a choice, mm-hmm. Jesus Murphy. So, and and then you just start extrapolating. You know, it's my life. Is it really? Mm. How do you demonstrate the propriety of that? Not the properness, the propriety, as in the propertyness of that. How can what can you point to that makes the case beyond any reasonable doubt that it's your life?
2: Mm-hmm
1: on the other hand, has it been entrusted to you? Well, hell yeah, it hasn't been entrusted to anybody else, except for the part where you begin to end and somebody else begins to begin that kind of hazy gray zone, where the the clear delineations of your selfness start to fade, or start to mingle with somebody else's, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm not talking from a romantic point of view there, although you can certainly see it there. But I'm talking about citizenship, really. Another important word for you today. Have you? And um, I'm just deeply saddened to continue to inhabit a co- por- portion of the world that believes that the greatest single exercise of uh, responsibility is dominion. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it's, it's, an, it's gotten us to an awful corner backed us into an awful corner and the one of the beautiful things and and one of the challenging things about dying of course is that really is it your life now and to what extent is it yours if you can't you know decide otherwise and dying is there to to teach you or to hand you your life back finally and say this that you imagined yourself to be more or less in charge of, or that you sought to be in charge of it? This thing that you claimed was your doing? How does it seem to you now? And see, I so I find the formulation of your prompt seductive in that direction.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That you should, as death comes around, begin to double down on your wanting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What you should be doing my strong advice to do everything you can to take your wanting out to the corner and leave it in the blue box
0: oh, i'm so glad we're having this conversation part of the reason why i reached out to you uh mr jenkinson is that uh, i it was talking with a previous uh guest in the podcast and i believe he interviewed you for his uh eric garza um okay. and i was running with the idea of actually stopping this podcast and i think during while you're expounding love in a lovely manner i wonder how would you answer it if i were to change the prompt to before i die i will
1: (laughs) (laughs) well i mean this is an allegation right (laughs) that's all that it is it describes that's true true. it Mm -hmm. describes the rage of my intent Mm
0: -hmm.
1: yeah Mm. and it it you could how about this mm-hmm. uh sorry what's the first part of it in as uh, I before die. i die oh, before i die well that's now
0: mm-hmm.
1: exactly I mean, you you might have meant with the prompt when death announces its proximity mm-hmm. but it's it, the truth of the matter is <laughs> your death is no closer to you when you get a terminal diagnosis than mm-hmm. it is right now you sitting there talking to me with your barbells in the back <laughs> you said i mean i mean you may feel as healthy as it's possible to feel and I hope you do. And you may feel as sane as it's possible to be. And perhaps you are, uh, but none of this means that your death is, is in, some, in the fundament of it in the future. Mm-hmm. The event is in the future, mm-hmm. but the meaning and import and consequence of your death is here now. What do I mean by that? I know that sounds like a smoke and mirrors thing, but if you give it five seconds, you realize instantly that I'm on to something here. So it, it runs like this. I didn't know that you're a physician, by the way. So I'm I'm feeling like I have something of an ally and something of a potential adversary in the same moment with this <laughs> stuff. Right? But anyway, let's let's proceed and see what we can do. Okay. So, okay, think of marriage. No, not marriage, think of wedding. Mm -hmm. And there's something that happens during the course of this mainly faux ceremony in North America, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: where nothing really happens, and that's the engineering of the thing. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It's designed to make sure nothing happens. And that's why it (laughs) tends to be brief, right? And that's Mm -hmm. why it tends to be increasingly, quote, secularized, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: is to try to take the wonder and the mystery of the thing and wrestle it to the ground and get it to behave. Mm -hmm. So then it becomes a celebration of the love of two people. What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that if you don't mistake one for the other. A celebration of love is, is all well and great, and I'm, I'm all for it. But it's not a ceremony. Mm-hmm. Why not? Well, because a ceremony is alchemical in its nature. That's why not. And if you're trying to celebrate something that exists and ratify it, better to have a party. Just have a riotous, <laughs> drunken, spewing-in-the-corner party mm-hmm. and, and leave your love alone.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But if you subject the love that you have for somebody else to a ceremony, you don't know what the outcome will be.
2: Mm-hmm. And this
1: is one of the reasons that uh, marriage is often so disappointing to people in love, is because they're waiting for the, the undeniable upside, the, the sort of the upswing that the celebratory part was supposed to bring only to discover that um, some aspect of the event brought in the rest of the story, right? The daily mm-hmm. grind part of the story, the trying to make it work part of this, you know, the normal stuff that, that on a good day we realize is part of it and on a bad day we think is some, something going horribly wrong. The point I'm making here is that you stand at the front of the room and you make a series of, okay, and the only time in, very likely in the course of your life that the word vow will ever be used to describe anything you do <laughs> is then, right? There's no other time you make vows. Basically, that's true. They're not promises, though. And here's why. Now you'll see the link with what we are talking about earlier. A vow, excuse me, a promise. Is a declaration of what you will do. Mm-hmm. By definition, a promise needs the future
2: mm-hmm.
1: in order to occur, mm-hmm. in order to manifest at all. The difference between that and a vow couldn't be larger. A vow is a declaration of what you're doing now, mm-hmm. it doesn't need a future. It'd be nice if you had one, mm-hmm. but it's not where the vow occurs. The vow occurs right now. And if you pay attention to the tense of the language of the verbs that you're using, you'll discover that all of them hover in the present moment and none of them lean on the promise. Let's go a step further because we are talking about dying here
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and we're talking about the prompt that you asked me about. Mm -hmm. So if I'm promising, basically, it's a hedged financing arrangement how, do, <laughs> how does it work Well, it works like this Listen, i'm going to do this and i'll do that and i'll do that and i'll really do that and i'll do that
2: mm-hmm.
1: great and uh, is there any caveat any any well uh no no i'm i'm really intending to do all that oh i thought there was a i thought there was a problem and that's the problem the intention you you declare that you will do this but we all know what you're saying is you mean to do it You hope to do it, you intend to do it, but you don't know if you're gonna do it. And if you're a normal human being like the rest of us, there's acres of time, you ain't gonna do it. But you're not gonna stand up there and say all that shit. If I was in charge of your wedding, I would see to it that that shit got said, but you won't say it. Mm -hmm. Why not? Because you're gonna put the whammy on the thing if you say it, that's why. And so this is why you don't really wanna have a ceremony if, if real is real. Mm-hmm. You want to keep the ceremony as far away from your pristine love as you possibly can for as long as you can, and then experiment with your noble intention. But the truth of the matter is that the slings and arrows that Shakespeare talked about and the emotional weather that we all live our, our way through will mess categorically with our intentions and our ability to follow through on them, you see? The beautiful yeah. thing about a vow is its, it's drastic weather. You're either doing it right now or you're negotiating a future circumstance. so vow is by virtue of saying it, you're doing it. Mm-hmm. By virtue of occupying that place in that time, you have stepped forward in the line of active duty beginning now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You, you don't need a future, okay? So by the same token, then, when I said that your dying is no further away from you than mine is from mine at perhaps twice your age, we are, both of us, living in in demonstrable and reasonable proximity to our end. Because your end is a knowable thing. Right? It's, and it should be knowable unto you. And there should be consequences in your present life for that knowledge. And if you're lucky, there are. I mean, lucky in the sense of working your ass off to try to remember <laughs> that stuff. It doesn't really sound like luck, but I think it is. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so this is, there's something gorgeous about this. It doesn't mean you could die at any minute. Like, I don't know what you achieved by making this declaration, nor does it mean what that hopeless little epithet that new agey people will tend to deliver to you. Oh, well, we're all dying all the time. And I, I, when people say that shit to me and they think we're on the same side when they say it, right? And I want to say to them, I'll tell you what, why don't you come with me for half an hour if you can bear it to the palliative care ward of anywhere mm-hmm. and tell me that this person who's laying there gasping for breath and mm-hmm. you are both dying and you won't be able to make the point. Because there's something real, as you well know, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: about actively dying. There's something real about receiving a more or less irreversible terminal diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Being born is not a terminal diagnosis. Being born is the invitation to a sequence, a flurry of endings before the last one. Right? So you practice Mm -hmm. to get good at it. But get good at it doesn't mean keep it at bay. It means when it comes, you're not some friggin' amateur thrashing about, making everybody's life an impossibility, and whispering to everyone, whatever you do, don't die. <laughs> well, I could go on.
0: I'd love you to, but it's <laughs> uh, the, the darn clock. It's always ticking in the uh, future, that, that, <laughs> that allegation of the future. The like
1: future that never comes, yeah.
0: Correct, correct. Um... And um, what you were talking about, it, it's also ringing very true for me right now because I was asked uh, by a very close longtime friend to officiate his wedding, and I've been telling him, look, look we're not doing this like a normal wedding, <laughs> because um, in, in that ceremony versus party that you're describing, I'm trying there's a, there's a lot of meat to, mm-hmm. to make it a true ceremony, so mm-hmm. we'll see. But in the age of COVID, who knows if these weddings are going you know, That's all side. Mm-hmm. So um, in the interest of that uh, ineffable feature, um, how would you approach that prompt of when I die, I won't?
1: Well, <laughs> same problem. Exactly. You know, it, it sounds like <laughs> I, I can engineer this thing mm-hmm. and turn it into a little sort of personal passion play. But you know, there's a reason that there's a thing called advanced directive, right? Mm-hmm. Or living will or whatever they call it in your jurisdiction. Uh, and, and what that thing is is, you know overtly amongst its uh, advocates, it's deemed to be a mark of real sanity and a sense of responsibility that you're going to exercise dominion even when you can't. Mm-hmm. It's so fucked up it's beyond <laughs> describing you know so it's it's it continues to be an exercise of personal dominion,
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay. Well, here's the thing. And if you've been in the trenches, you've seen this. Somebody writes uh, uh, an advance directive that basically articulates what enough already looks like, right? Mm -hmm. That's allegedly what it's for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The problem is it's been written by somebody who was never there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay? In other words, it's written by a rookie. Okay? Mm -hmm. And the problem is that when you get there, The whole circumstance bears little resemblance to what you imagined when you were fantasizing about it and making your bravado declarations about what you think personal dignity looks like and what its limits are. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that not being able to go to the bathroom by yourself might not be the end of civilization as you know it after all. Mm -hmm. See what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Okay. So in other words, we should take a knee shouldn't we in the in the presence of this whole operation and go Mm -hmm. damned if I know you know look anyway if I'm if I'm not functioning too well which I almost certainly won't be at some point is it for me to tell everybody what to do given that I won't have to live five minutes with the consequences Mm -hmm. surely it isn't surely humility alone says that since i'm not going to live any of the consequence of this advanced directive
2: mm-hmm. not really mm-hmm. not in
1: any enduring way maybe what i should be doing is entrusting myself to others instead of bossing them around <laughs> from just this side of the grave
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay and then you hopefully you avoid those insane deathbed <sighs> discussions about what so and so would want right mm-hmm and all the ludicrous family fantasies about what so-and-so would want,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like you would know, number one, and like that should determine things anyway. <laughs> number two, okay. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so what am I, am I, if I were to sum all this up, I would say that I think the oncomingness of your death is the opportunity, the probably the last one, to take your, the kind of, the sorry pageant of your intention. And just as they say in the old spirituals, lay that burden down, you know, Mm. and and make peace to the extent that you can, or no, not make peace, make some kind of pact of uncommon friendship with what means you no harm, but with what certainly means you. I mean, it's not, once it comes, it's not going away. Once it comes to your house, moves in, sits at the foot of your bed, that's it, baby. That's Mm -hmm. a more relentless and faithful companion than anyone else who's coming around will ever be able to be.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. And that's the one you say, you know, as as, uh, the Dalai Lama so gorgeously observed about the Chinese, maybe 30 years ago now, when he was asked about the Chinese, he said, ah, my friend, the enemy, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: very delicately put and very deeply understood that the notion of enemy is not the opposite of friend. The notion of enemy is the version of friendship that finally acknowledges the rest of the story. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think what your prompt could better be informed by the notion that this is not a time for wanting. It's not a time for intending, right? This is a time for laying all that shit down. (laughs) Entrusting it to others, saying, if I was you, I wouldn't prolong this wanting thing much longer, but you'll do what you'll do. I mean, it didn't help me to think these thoughts, and now I lay here and I have nothing but these thoughts and no opportunity really to act on them. But one of the gorgeous and very challenging things about dying is as your, your physical fight or flight system starts to decay, you might not be so distracted from this partnership as you would otherwise be. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's what quote ready, I don't like the term ready myself, as in getting ready to die, or I'm ready to die this kind of thing. Because the, the implication of the phrase is that readiness generally is a kind of insurance policy against the the hairy ass part of things right Mm -hmm. but in actual fact (laughs) you can't be you can't be ready for what you don't know Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but you can you can not know it actively Mm -hmm. you know and it's something like i guess it's something like what jesus said they say you know in, in his last gasping seconds up there that he said you know take this cup from me and then followed by but not my will but yours. And that basically covers it, you know. I don't want this to be happening.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And would that something greater than my want has now come to call. And if you can, you know, marry those two things together, well, I guess you have a shot at a sane, human, ordinary death.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I know with your time in the death trade that you've seen a lot of the dying, not dying. Yeah. And I wonder, have you seen what you, I don't, you know, not the right term, but like, what would you, have you seen what you would want, like a way that you would want to die? Have you seen examples of that? Cause I have never seen that. Yeah. And, I, and part of what I love about your work is that it gives me the the dream or the even just like the cardinal direction of what that death could look like.
1: Right, and some traction, hopefully too. Mm-hmm. You know, some gravel mm-hmm. underneath your feet where they don't slip and slide. Um, yeah, to your question, uh, you know, what I was uh, administratively was in charge of everything that wasn't medical <laughs> at a certain point. Mm-hmm which is a nice place to be in the system, let me tell you. <laughs> yes. Because when they come to get you for liability, you know, I'm way down the list, right? Mm-hmm. So, no, and of course, it put me on a collision course with physicians who imagine themselves to be imminently qualified to do everything I did plus their medical stuff. And it was it was sad to see how little humility there was in the medical professions
2: mm-hmm. when
1: it came to whole person care and you could go further and you could say that there's something about the standard medical training that puts that puts the trainee on a collision course with humanity and the likelihood is that humanity will not survive the encounter Mm -hmm. that's sad to say that but but and i don't say that of any grudge not at all but there's something about the training that makes the whole person mindfulness fall away because you can't maintain it and continue to proceed as the institution and the profession and the patient and the patient's family expect you to. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And eventually you have to choose what your allegiance is to, right? To whom do you owe what? As I did. And my decision finally was, I owe the patient, first of all, and then I owe the patient something that the patient is deeply unlikely to ask of me. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was the hard part because then you realize you're really having to decide what your indebtedness is. Mm-hmm. It's not a foregone conclusion every time you go in. So I even forget what we're talking about now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> a good death, or okay. a death that you would want. Uh, yes. For yourself. Sorry. Sorry. Right. It's so, okay. Sorry. It's fine. I love it. <laughs>
1: what, it good. what it meant was that if I had done my work well in the interview, you know, in the weeks preceding the time we're talking about now, I would not see the person you're asking me about. Mm. I have no real contact with them. Why not? Because I did what I was supposed to do, which is to Mm. make myself obsolete. Mm -hmm. I'm not there. So I can be one more ghoul at the foot of the deathbed, you know, in the moment of transfer. Right,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I am there for a brief but intense period of time to lend whatever is useful of my experience and my understanding and entrust it to them and then we basically wish them well, you know, in some kind of emphatic sort of Viking fashion, you know, <laughs> death boat fashion, you know what I'm talking about with death mm-hmm. boat? Mm-hmm. Okay, something like that. You know, and I I gotta push that boat off the off the shore and out into the current of the way it is. Mm-hmm. And I don't get to go out there with it, you know, in a dinghy or a friggin' and you know, all that stuff. Nope. Nope. They're in it on their own.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's that. And I have to proceed in the in the weeks prior to that as if that moment's coming. And if I've done well, the moment comes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And if I haven't. Uh, They get, you know, I get a last minute call for one more tune up, you know, one more conversation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, like you need more words at a time like this, you know.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, um, generally speaking, I didn't see a lot of good deaths. Mm -hmm. But I would consider that to be a kind of success. Mm -hmm. If we're going to use that kind of language, it's a kind of success. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of the deaths I saw were disasters. Culturally speaking, psychically speaking, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the only place that they weren't utterly disastrous was medically speaking. And that's a terrible distinction to have to make. Right. Right. What, what, what's the, what's the, old, uh, ana- the old half joke? Uh, it's something like there's no such thing as dying. There's just a failure to thrive. <laughs> right. Well, yes. dying is not a failure to do anything dying takes a lot of work and you better not by god call it a failure Mm
2: -hmm.
1: of any kind the person has no obligation to thrive there at the end of their life they do have an obligation to die and you know as people have said about aging dying is learning how to pay the price of still being alive but not for much longer with greater and greater grace not to, def- well, defeat is in there. You know, Rilke, the poet, the German poet Rilke, he, he had a, a gorgeous observation that goes like this. We're not here to succeed. We're not here to prevail. We're not here to win. We're here to be defeated by greater and greater things. Such that you can brag about what took you down. And that's what our death, it seems to me, should be,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: is a thing greater than us. You know, it is the fullness of our life come to call, not the annihilation of our life. The only thing it annihilates is our dominion. And for North Americans, that's a hellish visitation there towards (laughs) the end. If you've made your dominion, um, basically your life habit,
0: Uh, I could talk with you for another full two hours, um, Stephen, <laughs> it's a lot of fun, um, and I think in the interest of time, I know we have uh, only a few more minutes together, um, I would like you to eviscerate <laughs> the final prompt of after I die, I want, and I wonder also how would you tie in um, like orphan wisdom and the, the way that you're you know, taking in students or, or you know, learners um, there, like what do you, like, you imagining for that far future?
1: Well, of course, in this day, time and place, uh, I'm not taking anybody in and haven't yeah. done so for an awful long time now. No. I haven't done any work of the kind you're asking me about in probably a year, Oh, wow! Yeah. just about a year. And I, I have a band, as you may be aware of, and, and uh, mm-hmm. we haven't, our last tour ended a year ago, about right now, <laughs> and we haven't played together since. We haven't ah. been together since, mm-hmm. actually. So all of this is uh, grievous for me, because uh, uh, as far as I can tell, it doesn't seem likely that there'd be a general reconstitution of the arrangement that allowed me to travel as I did and to perform mm-hmm. and appear as I did and mm-hmm. all of that stuff. And uh, it's really, I mean, you know, your guess is as good as mine about what we're going to look at a year of quote a normal life it's like trying to reassemble your normal life after terminal diagnosis baby your normal life is the first casualty of finding out (laughs) right and it ain't coming Mm. back Mm -hmm. okay it's something like this so um so it's the same thing with the with your prompt about uh uh the 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 okay Sorry, I had so many things colliding in my mind right there. And that's what it sounded like. I
0: know Um, exactly what you mean.
1: Yeah, you could say that all of your life prior to finding out that you're dying uh, is an exception, probably an exception to that rule. The rule is that you're going to now struggle with living all the consequences of your misapprehension of what the whole deal was for. And you're gonna try to cling to them and be consistent in order to resemble the self that you've learned how to be, Mm -hmm. where the whole operation is pleading with you and giving you ample opportunity to cease being the one that you, by general acclamation, Came to agree to be. So that's how radical my understanding of dying. No, my understanding is not radical, but I understand dying to be a radical proposition in that way, is that it it whispers to you that you have no further obligation to that maniac that you that answered to the word I. Right? That's one. Mm-hmm. Two, uh t- tell you a brief story here now, which is probably gonna bring us beyond the time, so what? Um, So I was asked to teach in an alternative high school out on the West Coast in British Columbia. And it was a terrible snowstorm and all this, barely made it, stumbled into the parking lot after having driven most of the night. Uh, I was not in the greatest condition, which generally allows the more snarling part of me to emerge. (laughs) And anyway, long story short, I ended up in a place that was a little auditorium that was supposed to be for the senior class, whatever it was, the 15 or 20 people. And the word got out and in an alternative school, I guess there's no such thing as teachers in charge. So the kids all decided they want to come down to my gig. So the whole school is basically there, Mm -hmm. which is to say you got kids who are maybe 12 or 13, all the way up to 17, 18. Mm -hmm. As you would well know, that's a hellishly wide range, Mm -hmm. depending on what you're going to end up talking about, right? Mm Okay, so we were, of course, um, circling around many of the things we've talked about now, but at a at an in a way that was more accessible to people of that age. And when it came time to asking a question, this um, this goth out, a very severe looking uh, Valkyrie of a of a girl f- flirting with womanhood put her arm up, and uh, it was clear that she didn't want to ask me something. She was going to say something. So I acknowledged her, and she said, I have a right to kill myself, she said, just like that. Mm -hmm. No discussion, no wondering, not even what did I think of it, just that, and she put her hand down, and she was, as you would be at 15 or 16, utterly satisfied with how completely in charge of her life she was. And of course, this is from page one of the, it's my life. It's my body, it's my life. It's myself, it's my, so it's all mine. And of course, the people in the back who are in the, the office staff and the teaching staff freaked out because you're not supposed to talk about dying with adolescence. You're just not supposed to talk about it, right? Because talking about it is tantamount to counseling it because it's considering the possibility. And as soon as you do that, then the prohibitions against it all begin to dissolve.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I understand. And it wasn't my first rodeo, Okay. <laughs> It's not like I'm undone by the question of a 14-year-old. Um, so, so what did you say? Well, this is what I said. I said to her, you got anybody in this world that you love? And she looked at me like, fuck you. It's, it's none of your bandwidth. <laughs> and I looked at her like, no, fuck you. You're the one that, asked, that said the thing. So now you're in it, baby. And you don't know that you're in it with me now, but it's me you said it to. So fuck you, if I may say. So... So she said, finally, I mean, she kind of didn't like the question, but she finally admitted that she did have people in this world that she loved. Okay, good. I said, I'm not asked for names, you know, just do you. And then the second question, do you have any people in this world who love you? It's often not the same list. And she finally acknowledged that she did. I said, okay, well, if you're successful with this right of yours, that you're so clear and so hot on. Let's just be at least as clear that with your success comes the obligation of at least one or two of the people I just asked you about to identify you beyond the tag on your toe. That's what you're asking. That's what you're putting into motion. That's what your right delivers people that you claim to be in a loving relationship with two, doesn't it? That's what you mean, isn't it? By you have a right to kill yourself. That's what you were saying, isn't? It? was it? And of course she was in way overhead and understandably <laughs> so because she didn't think one of those things. And when I suggested that this was the inevitable consequence, it wasn't working out well to have this right anymore, was it? No, why not? Because a culture that prides itself on rights, generally speaking, doesn't talk about obligations or consequences very much. See, Mm -hmm. it's a child's understanding of what it means to be a person. You see, what you really want to be wearing is the consequence of your personhood, at least as much as the rights of your personhood. And if you Mm -hmm. exercise these rights, what are the consequences for others? Failure to do that makes you a sociopath. That's what it makes you a sociopath full of personal rights. And if that language don't mean nothing to anybody listening today, given what's going on, I ain't got nothing to say. <laughs> so all of this then is, I'm, I'm just suggesting, not very gently, that the, the beauty of dying, the radicalizing beauty of dying. I'm not talking about your death anymore. I'm talking about knowing that death is in the world. Yes, of course, knowing at some level that it's coming to, uh, you know, a bed near you pretty soon, soon enough, too soon by some measures, not soon enough, once you get really close. I'm not talking about your personal death, though. There's not that, you know, death is not that personal actually. You resemble a lot more people than you wish you did when you were dying. It's not that idiosyncratic. But everybody's death before your own, what is that? Is that a haunt? Is that a, is it a tease? Is it a torment? Is it a, something that's coming to get you in the night and make it a sleepless one? Maybe. But what it really is, is your chance to get it right. Everybody's death before your own, that's your PhD, mister. And you better study because you don't want to be a stranger to that. That's just my friendly advice. So, so then, you know, your wants after you're dying, it's none of your friggin business, you you know, you're simply the meaning of your life is not in your hands. What your life means is what it means to others. And they'll quickly assign meaning to your life, don't you worry about it. (laughs) And they won't really do so as long as you're yammering in the corner, adding to the official record, you see. But the moment your trap is shut for good, and you have nothing further to say, people are going to start weighing in on who you were and what you meant and why you were and how it, you know, all that stuff. And as they do so, the meaning of your life begins to accrue. You see, that can't really happen with you there. So... The meaning of your life begins to replace your presence. And that's what ancestry is or was Mm -hmm. until we swore off ancestors not that long ago. Mm -hmm. Until we took up the religion of, you know, personal determination and all that stuff. So that's it.
0: Usually, I ask my yes um, if they have any concluding words to the audience directly, or to you know, feature people whenever they are. Whenever they are, um, I, however, think that what you just gave the audience was a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good note to end on. Do you agree?
1: Amen. Yeah. Well, listen, I could, I could add this. P.S. Mm-hmm. Um, the the record, um, Rough Gods, uh, which I think they're going to give you access to. Uh, you know, after this thing, Mm -hmm. if you'd be so kind as to play the very last cut on Rough Gods, which is a studio record,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: one that we conceived in February and March of this year. Uh, There's a track there called Harvard Square. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: That's where I went to school. And it's a very minor little event that took place in Harvard Square. As I walked through it one snowy December, late afternoon, early evening doesn't sound very promising, but everything we've been talking about is there in that three or four minute story and in the music behind it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'd recommend that as a PS and as a way of thanking the people for listening and, you know, giving us a chance if they did. <laughs> if it didn't, well, it's me flipping them the bird with a good story. <laughs> and it's my way of, uh, you know, thanking you for the invitation too.
0: Thank you so much, Stephen Jenkinson. This has been a true pleasure.
1: Yes, sir. Me too. Thank you. Thank you. I went to Harvard Divinity School in the late 1970s. I thought I'd get into the clergy business. The clergy, they thought otherwise. They were right. Things have worked out on all sides of that ill-conceived notion, though. Still, God's mysteries are as mysterious when they work out as when they don't. So I was counseled out of the divinity part of things. I had no plan B at all. I was eight weeks into my career, and I was missing the soul of it all. my divinity plans in shards I was walking across Harvard Yard in a skiff of December snow it was dusk and everything was violet shadow and murmuring now pigeons are a fact of life there they'll let you get pretty close and then they'll explode in feathers and bawling to land ten feet away to start the whole thing again and that happened with every bird but one aloft, that one, but remained in the snow. The bird tried again to rise and didn't, nothing but flapping, bird adrenaline. The bird let me get too close, I thought, so I knelt beside, and I reached over it, and I folded the wings to the body so as not to hurt. And I made to turn the bird over to look for something wrong. In that rotating motion, the bird died. Thrum moved through my palms and then up both of my arms and across the shoulders and to my chest and quivered there and stayed there. And my breathing was burdened. For some other life had taken its place there alongside mine. And it lasted for maybe an hour or... Until now.